We're back with Fusapod, a podcast about creativity, community, and the things that matter. I'm Lee Sean Huang. In this episode, David Colby Reed and I have a conversation with filmmaker, children's book author, breakdancer, and all around polymath Paolo Bitanga, also known as B Boy Powie. We talked about the power of play, pursuing creative careers across disciplines, and more. All right, let's do this. Delve in. All right. Tell me and more. Hi, my name is Paolo Batanga, aka B Boy Powie. I'm a B Boy filmmaker and overall storyteller. Thank you so much for coming on to Fusapod. Yeah, why don't we start with how did you get into all of these things, right? And maybe they're intertwined or maybe they're just separate yeah. stories and we can go from there. <laughs> yeah, what are the things and how did you find yourself doing them? I took a piano when I was three. So that was my first like musical uh, hobby. And then I started drawing at the age of four. In like first grade, my parents got me into like performance and like I would do like elocution, like poetry and stuff. I would do competitions and through like first and fifth grade. Growing up in Manila and going to like this all boys Catholic school, that was like kind of like my main jam. I would like win these like, um, you know, like oral interpretation kind of things. Um, I would like, perform we didn't really have like too many plays but if we did probably did some of those but and then i ended up doing like choir uh, i played in a band in middle school and then i think what really changed me in my life was when i discovered breaking or like break dancing as a uh, most people would call it and maybe that's because that's something i found on my own it wasn't something that was like encouraged by my parents. Actually, it was discouraged. It's still discouraged. Still this day. It's, it's hilarious. In a way, I still like sneak out, quote unquote, just to go break dancing um, for my parents or I don't tell them. They live in the Philippines. I'm in New York and I'm like traveling to what you call jams, right? These like huge competitions. I don't get a phone call from my mom. She's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like. Oh, you know, just hanging out with friends, and I'm like, responsible. Yeah, and I'm getting additional professional. Yeah, I'm I'm just like standing on the road in like in like Orlando, like outside of this huge like there's this booming hip hop music playing going in the background. It's like, oh, you know, nothing much, just another another Saturday night. But yeah, it was breaking that really got me into it, and then I think professionally, where I found myself at some sort of peace. And again, at this point, my mom cursed me. This was the first time I I heard this, but my mom, I guess, like blessed me with the curse and she dubbed me as the jack of all trades, master of none. And now everyone says that now. (laughs) It was the first time I ever heard that. I was like, oh, that's really profound, mom. It was like, oh, it turned out to be something that everyone says. That's how I uh, settled on uh, filmmaking. What appealed to me about it was it was this art form that kind of corralled uh, multiple art forms within it. Hmm. And so if, if I still wanted to practice my love for music, I could, I could do it from score. And not that I score my own films, but like thinking about score um, when I make films or like doing music videos or like even editing is, editing is rhythmic in and of itself. Hmm. It's, it is music. Film cutting is pretty much the same as like music cutting. Most of my film content is dance related too. So it, it, in a way it lets me keep all of those, all of those like pastimes that I feel very sentimental about and I still wanna um, keep close. 
It sounds like you're doing breaking while you're doing other stuff. And some of that other stuff is film and editing related. Some of it is writing. What's your portfolio of stuff? And do you work on things across that portfolio like all the time? Or do you find that like, hey, this is a season where I'm spending more time you know, on film stuff, where this is a season where I'm spending more time on break. I don't know, like like the circuit, or as you mentioned, and going to these different competitions. So, right. like, <laughs> like, like, did you find that you're doing everything at once, or switching through? Um, it's kind of a mix. So, career-wise, you know, if you ask me what I do, I'm I'm a filmmaker, and then you get to know me close enough, uh, you get to know me well enough, then you'll find out that, like, I I go to like these underground like competitions. Like, I keep these separate they both have a place in my life so i i think i'm in a, a peculiar place where both of these halves of my lives are actually arts i mean you can relate as well being like designers and whatnot your crafts people and particularly artistic crafts people i always encourage people and my friends to like especially if they burn themselves out on their at their jobs I always encourage them to like find their breaking right well like what breaking is to me mm-hmm. is yoga to like other people or running you know or like some some sort of like outlet because when you're asking like how I manage my time with both it's kind of like obviously the filmmaking has to take priority because that's my actual career and I've consciously made a choice not to make the dance my career because it's also the opposite, right? Because when once that becomes a career, it might become like a crutch at some some point. I might I might I, yeah. I don't want I never want to become de- dependent on it in terms of like what a livelihood provides. Because uh. what it is to me is because I love to do it, and mm-hmm. so I don't want to fall out of love with it. Not that I'm ever going to fall out of love with with like my career of like storytelling, but like you know you guys can relate to this. So prior to this, I, I ran an independent production company here for five years. And like, you just got to do all sorts of stuff to keep afloat. Probably 80% of it is stuff that you don't necessarily choose to do. You, you have to do it. And thankfully, in my life, I keep breaking sacred. I always get to choose what I get to do with my break mm-hmm. compared to my filmmaking. So nobody else can own it, right? Because yeah. you own it and it, there's no client for that necessarily yeah. who's dictating. I've lived in the same building for like uh, close to four years and it was only like I think a year and a half ago that my doorman realized that that I was like a competitive break dancer and he, he watches like World of Dance and like so you think you can dance and he's like yo dude when are you gonna get on one of these shows and I'm like dude I've gotten like the emails like every year and I just it's not for me man I never want that and I, but I do want that of of the people who like my breaking like community and like my friends some of them that is their life livelihood and that is their lifestyle so that's for them and i also don't want to take that from them by being you know just like oh let me try this for fun and take this opportunity away from you <laughs> you know so earlier you had mentioned like breaking serves like almost like a yoga like function for some other excuse me the function that yoga serves for some other people is akin to breaking for you but how would you characterize that because um, I'm, I'm interested in like all these different pieces that come together in your process. Well, I, I do get this from my writing as well. This is the kind of high you get, I guess, from like passion projects. With breaking, lately I've been calling it like nourishing, nourishing my soul. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there will be weeks where I'm I'm just not gonna have time to dance at all, and you're gonna notice like a difference with me. There's like this internal imbalance, mm-hmm. and um, what's what's beautiful about breaking and like what makes yoga a really good comparison to it is that it's actually like a physically demanding activity. Mm-hmm. So you you get all sorts of like all sorts of endorphins or like whatever like released and it's just like an outlet and like you sweat and then whatever like that translates to like psychologically and physically and emotionally like you get you get all of those out of it at the end of the day for me it's what I call like nourishing my my soul really like I feel really good about it and it goes like beyond like emotional it's really spiritual for me yeah I'm thinking of this analogy like um sometimes we think about like nutrition is like, oh, you've got to get these different vitamins and take the supplement and so on. But that's different from eating a balanced meal, you know, that there's something about the totality of the, or the wholeness of a meal that is nutritionally balanced in a way that like just supplements yeah, and soil it can't get you, you know. Yeah. I'm sure there are these like instrumental kinds of um, benefits of breaking for you. It's like, oh, it's good for endorphins, it's fitness, it's whatever. But it's also something that probably can't be reduced to like its physiological effects or whatever. It, there's just something ineffable about the entire act. Yeah. And, and like, I think that that's an interesting idea. And I wonder like how, how you came to have like mm-hmm. this particular set of things that you do. And especially with breaking, as you were describing it, it's like this, uh, this good for your soul, restorative kind of thing. I'm curious about how it came to have that role. You were saying as from the time you were a kid, you had all these different activities that you were pursuing as creative expressions. Some you chose to professionalize, some you chose to keep quite apart from the professional. And, and how did it come to be for you with, with your current mix? I think that it's really telling like the stage in my life in which I got into breaking, which was high school. That's just such a formative time. Like really, we're asking me to try and to travel back like over 10 years and like rationalize like what I was thinking there but in general like let's just like talk about the elements right totally. like it's like a super competitive high school I was it was it was a small school and this was in Manila it was an international school in the Philippines but pretty much like 80% of the graduating class would go travel west and go to like the top schools like in America or like in Europe and stuff and as you said, I had my role in that class, and eventually I would, it would manifest itself. I, I won the quote-unquote Renaissance Man Award, and I'm proud of that because I, I, was, I was salty for several years prior to that, not getting acknowledged for any of the, the dumb stuff that I do because I feel like doing it. And I, I kind of, I think my version of like teen angst in high school was actually believing that I was smart, but never being validated for it. Because in a, especially in a school setting, that validation comes via grades. And I didn't get the highest grades. I didn't get, I didn't flunk anything. But also, I do like to think that I excelled at something, but I wasn't, I wasn't really getting that externally. And so with breaking, it was, it definitely can't rationalize this, but just probably like natural. I saw something cool on like a video or a TV, like a commercial, and then I wanted to imitate it. This was pre-YouTube era. I think YouTube came like just the year after, so I would have to mm-hmm. search on like, um, what is that? Like uh, those those random sites that had like some video hosting, they would have like maybe three 
breaking videos total. And with those three videos, and like maybe one of them was a music video that had a guy dancing for just like a few seconds. From those, I just like extrapolated. Like I was like, okay, I got this move, this move, this move, this move. Mind you, this was in like the early 2000s and quote unquote, the b-boy movement was at least like 20 years old by then. So no one was doing that anymore. <laughs> so I, um, I, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care. This was just for me. Mm -hmm. I would practice this in my bedroom, realize I was pretty good, or maybe I was able to do some of the moves. And so what had happened was I was in an elective, elective dance class in high school. And every year we get like special guest dancers teach us. And the teacher brought in, uh, just so happened to be like the godfather of like the underground like street dance scene in the Philippines. And I owe a lot to him. Shout out to Jay Master. But um, I owe a lot to this guy. And he taught us a, a choreography piece. And um, he noticed I picked up quicker than, than my peers. And that I had like extra moves that were just like showing every you know, just like flashing. He's like, wait, wait, this guy actually knows some stuff. So he approached me after class. He's like, hey, did you know that behind the moves that you do, there's like this whole culture, um, this entire culture, this entire community. And if you want, I can show it to you. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally down. He's like, great. There's like a jam next Saturday. Come through. And then true enough, Saturday rolls around. I didn't tell my parents. It was like in a really sketchy part of town. It was like this rundown basketball court. I thought it was in the wrong place, but like booming hip hop music led me into like this, this like poorly lit, like indoor basketball court. And I saw like 12 year olds just like flipping around and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, these kids are crazy. And I'm like, more so than than feeling inferior to everyone, I was just in pure awe. Mm -hmm. At like that, this was just a thing. You know, there was like maybe like, maybe like 50 people total there. I'm like, that many people are like into this. And like, you know, like they, they like convene at like, you know, on the weekends and like do this thing, like sign me up. So that's how I started. And going back to the initial question, how it became for me like an outlet, it really is just going back to the school setting being so demanding. I was in like this full IB diploma program and like college wasn't even that hard compared to high school. And so sometimes I wonder if I would have survived the high school academic life without breaking. One of the things that emerges to me in this story is the role of um, different kinds of knowing or expression. I mean, I feel like we're good at identifying that in other domains. So if someone can recite poetry extemporaneously and, you know, novel poetry extemporaneously, we're awed. If someone can speak like that um, in terms of oration or something, we're awed by it. I feel like there's something akin to that with movement. And I think that encompasses dance and martial arts and so on. Especially like in the high school context, there were certain ways of knowing that were privileged or valued, and you felt challenge in, in differentiating yourself in that way, I guess. Because you mentioned that you might have been more middle of the pack academically in this really competitive academic setting. And another thought that just occurred to me while we were saying this, I mean, there's this whole literature around multiple intelligences, and some of which has been discredited or, you know, is contestable. But the idea that 
we experience things differently through our different sensory modalities, I think holds up, certainly in my experience, and it sounds like yours, and I would venture that it's generalizable, that there's an improvisational sensibility to dance. And in the way that we value people who can start orating extemporaneously or develop novel poetry or riff in jazz, and it's just something that's happening in the setting. I think you describe that when you describe like your mentor calling out, mm-hmm. you know, like your your riffs or your proclivity to do that kind of variation. And so it sounds like there's this expressive capacity and means of knowing that breaking represents for you. And are there things that from your experience breaking that like you've found to be formative as you go about other aspects of your life? Yeah. To the point of like different forms of intelligence and you you briefly mentioned language as well i think the most humbling thing that's that i really got out of breaking was the diversity in like friends you know like the community around me like sometimes i'm at a jam or i'm even just at a session right like a practice session let's say i'm in the studio in like the lower east side expg and I look at the guys around me and, and the girls around me and i'm just like who would have thought that we would have we would end up in the same room. Like this she's, Motley yeah, crew. this Molly, she's from Russia. This dude's from Harlem. This guy uh, programs at like Google. How would we have met otherwise? I think there's a lot to be said about that. And I think that one thing that's, that's truly humbled me is I've met all sorts of people who are prodigies at breaking. There's actually a vocabulary in breaking. I will be the first to say that I'm not the most articulate at it, actually. Like going back to my story earlier, I picked up on stuff quickly, but once you got into the actual breaking, like man, like some of it isn't natural to me. And then you'll meet like some people who like for them it just clicks. And I met some of those people and um, because I've done documentary filmmaking as well. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. So I talk to these people in depth about um, their experiences with breaking. And surprisingly, I was interviewing this one guy, he's like one of the most aggressive like battlers in the Philippines. He's like, he'll get in your face, you know, and he's really sharp with his moves and he's really good. And you know, he's a friend of mine, but like if you battle him, he's like a total dick. But um, he tells me that he's really shy and he was, he was a really timid kid at school. Like he, he would be shy to talk to people. He'd be antisocial. And in breaking, he's a completely different animal. And I think that says a lot, you know, I think that language is limited and it's funny because like not only is language limited like in and of itself like like spoken spoken language but there are languages within language so even like if i'm trying trying to talk to a french person that's an additional like barrier that we have to like hurdle over and art in a lot of the conversations i've been having is what fills that void of like really connecting to another person for lack of like a good verbal avenue. It's like, it's just better said without words. Sometimes it's through dance, sometimes it's through painting, sometimes it's through film. Even literature, by the way, this is, this is what struck me when, when once I started thinking about that too, I'm like, okay, language is limited, cool. An author is trying to like tell a message to uh, their reader. The best authors, their message is not in those words, right? So for example, uh, you're, you're watching a film scene. 
And a, a good film scene is like a dialogue between two characters. The best films are not the characters trying to tell you as the audience, in a sense, like breaking the fourth wall, what the writer is trying to say. It's them having a conversation with each other, and it's a subliminal messaging that comes from that conversation. That's what the writer is trying to convey, the screenwriter, the director. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, no offense to fans of Ayn Rand, but like Atlas Shrugged or books like that that have characters monologuing for eighty pages yeah. at a time to explain a philosophy. You know, like, like they, they tend to be laborious reading, um, and there's a joy and there's a subtlety in what you're describing in like these other kinds of discursive modes. You know. Yeah, I think it's interesting this idea of the limits of language that you brought up before, right? Because it reminds me of the German philosopher Wittgenstein, yeah. and he has this quote, and I'm, you know, my German is horrible, but it's basically die Grenzen meiner Sprache bedeuten die Grenzen meiner Welt, which is the limits of my language or the borders of my language mean the borders of my world. And so since you were talking about yeah. film as well, it's sort of like in those old musicals where like there's so much emotion between these characters and then it's like, you know, the hills are alive, right? And it's like people well, only express it. Yeah, itself. right. And it's like it rains and now you're singing yeah. and dancing in the rain and there's sort of Fred and Ginger kind of movies. <laughs> yeah. but I, I think there's something to that, like the limits of what we do with our bodies working in urban environments in like relatively white collar jobs. Yeah. There's a limit to that and the, that sort of expressiveness that you get from something like breaking and, and how that adds to your language, both kind of filmic language and just everyday expressive language. Yeah, we have this one dude in my crew. He actually, I, I podcast with him too. He has a recreational podcast. Check it out, it's colon slash, it's spelled out colon, like C-O-L-O-N space slash, because when you type it with the symbols, it looks like a confused face. <laughs> but um, we'll put a link yeah, in yeah, 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 it'll be great. He's in my crew here in New York, Ginyu Force, and uh, uh, sometimes he gets really insecure about his breaking because he doesn't move the way that the rest of us do. And he, he's been doing it for not as long as some of us do. And like my crew includes people have competed like internationally like myself. And sometimes he's trying to do a move we do. And, and because of the way of how different his body is from like say mine, it might like swing him farther or like he might spin out of control a bit or like it, it, it's frustrating for him. Is, you know, it's this is a regular conversation. It's like, dude, I can't do it, or like, uh, I can't do it like the way you want me to. I was like, no, no, that's exactly the way I want you to do it because no one else can move like that. I can't even move like that if I wanted to because like my arms are like this long compared to like my body compared to like yours and like the way that you move, especially when it's accidental. I think that's that's the beauty of it, and that's something we we talk a lot about in like various art forms, like the happy accidents, right? Those are like moments that um, a filmmaker I follow, Bresson, Robert Bresson, the late Robert Bresson, he, he called those the real truths in art. You try to do a move, he'll try to do it, but he'll like, he'll do it like slightly off and like lose balance, but like he couldn't have planned that, right? And that's, that's like a genuine expression of his body. Um, I'll give you one more, I'll give you one analogy in the dance world, it's very interesting. Locking, the funk dance of locking, you know, where they wear like the, the striped shirts and stuff. Locking was invented by a, by a fellow named uh, Greg Campbellock Jr. Back in those days there was a dance 
um, the funky chicken and he couldn't do it. He was like too awkward. It's like if he tried to do like the floss dance right now, which I can't do by the way, <laughs> but if I tried to do it, I'm sure a lot of people made fun of him, but he accidentally invented a new dance style because he couldn't do it. And that's how locking was birthed. And just the angles that he hit by not hitting the angles he was supposed to and because of how his body uh, reacted um, appealed to some people on a spiritual level, like the aesthetics of it, it just like struck them and they're like, hey, that's, that's its own dance and I want to learn that. Mm -hmm. And that's how locking was born. Much in the way that we can talk about language as being subjective, words have different valences or meanings depending on the context and who's saying them. You know, if you are the president of the United States saying something that's different from a guy on a soapbox on the corner saying it, uh, like there are different contexts to language and, and language is subjective. It sounds like there's some of that same idea that is applicable in terms of movement as well, yeah. that movement is a subjective expression of some kind of state. And in those subjective differences in movement, you can discover new forms of expression, which I think is pretty interesting. It's really interesting, especially in a breaking context, because uh, what tends to be the ultimate form of breaking is the battle, right? And the whole point of the battle, which it's, it's so ironic because in many ways it doesn't inherently belong there. When you think of competition, it's, it's a game and it's like a zero-sum game, right? Like someone's got to win and someone's got to lose. But ironically, within breaking and like street dance, the whole message is that there is no necessarily right or wrong or like good and bad. And like, who's to say that you're doing a move wrong because that's the way that your body does that move. That's like, in, a, in many ways, that's your original way of doing that move. And it's, it's really interesting. I constantly unpack like, okay, what is it about battles that we actually look for? And the funny thing is that... And, and actually, yeah. before you do that about that, can you just explain like what a typical like battle looks like? That's yeah. true. That's true. A battle looks like it's close to what you see in the movies, like step up and like whatever, but like they <laughs> Save the last dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I haven't seen those. <laughs> exactly. But like they obviously, like uh, they take some like creative liberties with it and stuff. But the general... Uh, principle is the same you go one by one and let's say it's a one-on-one -on -one battle and I'll go and do my thing the music is completely whatever is playing in that environment so it's a freestyle dance first and foremost breaking is that's why a lot of b-boys tend to be horrible when it comes to following choreography including myself but uh, <laughs> but okay I'll go first I'll do my thing it's usually like 30 to 45 seconds not that I time it I just started to measure these things by observing other people. And then you do your thing, then I do my thing, you do your thing, and depending on like what the battle format is, we go that many rounds. Um, and there's a panel of judges, these are for formal competitions, and they'll judge based on rounds. <laughs> um, and they have a certain criteria. But in terms of the original battle aspect of breaking, like let's just go, we'll go back to like late 70s, early 80s, like just the natural how battling came about was like, okay, these, these kids on the street, they discover breaking, they kind of invent it, actually, you know, like, and you have like the early crews like Rocksteady and like NYC Breakers and all that, incredible breakers. It was a matter of like, look, I dance with my friends and then, oh, down the block, there's like another group of kids dancing, we wanna prove that we're better than them, right? So that's naturally how it occurred. And we continue that ritual 
uh, these days. So I gave you the formal dance battle, but also we have what you call ciphers. These are my fi- these are what a lot of people say is the true b-boy way. So a cipher is a circle. For those of you listening, it's probably you might call it like a dance circle. But you're in a circle, and maybe you're at a wedding. <laughs> it's usually you're at a wedding, or whatever. And one by one, like your drunk uncle, like goes in, and then your cousin goes in, like whatever. It's one by one. In breaking, we do that a lot, and that's what happens at the jams too. And what's really fun about cipher is some people have different opinions, but I like the battles that come out of there. So let's say you have a formal battle happening where you enter and stuff, and like you have to qualify. In ciphers, anything goes. So if you and I are in the same cipher, and I'm like, you know what, I'm, I want to, I want to see if I can beat, like, you know, David at a battle. I'll call you out. I'll like, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I wouldn't know that if I just saw you there. <laughs> but I'd look at you, and then I'd like do some sort of gesture, or I'd be like, whatever. And then it's a battle. And battles are really intense, by the way. You know, and like sometimes they lead to fights and stuff. Some of the most vitalizing moments I've ever had in my life came from a cipher battle, specifically a cipher battle. Last time I was in Boston, two people called me out because they didn't know who I was. You know, it's like a territorial thing. And like my friends are like, dude, people hate you here. Like, no, they love me here. That's the point. And I called another dude out there. And you know what? Me and that dude, we went like eight rounds. I I accidentally hit him (laughs) several times. It, it It got pretty intense. And then you know what happened after? We talked it for like 20 minutes. We found out that, you know, we like watched like, I don't know, the same TV shows and like anime, we're like nerds and stuff. And we became Facebook friends and now we're friends, yo. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the things I think about when I tell people, I'm like, yo, like, like find your, find your breaking in your life. Cause like, how else can I meet these people like mm-hmm. in that kind of space, you know? One of the things that strikes me as you're talking about the battles, I'm thinking, and Lishan, you can talk about this if you'd like, but capoeira, Lishan teaches and practices capoeira, and there's this intense dialogic exchange when you see people playing capoeira together. Like, you might have practiced particular moves or strings of moves or something, but when you're getting to that exchange, it's putting all those moves in a different context. And I see parallels to other traditions too and ways of knowing. Since we're calling out other podcasts that we like, uh, one of my favorites is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. It uh, features these two Harvard Divinity School grads talking about Harry Potter and using methods of uh, analysis that are applied in religious studies to Harry Potter. That sounds amazing. And so one of the techniques that they use is this... um, Jewish tradition of Havruta, and it's typically practiced with the Torah. You sit there with someone, you read a passage, and you ask a question about it and supply an answer, Mm -hmm. and the person that you're reading with also supplies an answer, and you go back and forth, and the idea is that in... I'm, I'm quoting someone here, and I can't remember who it is, but it's, in argument, truth is born, that there is a truth that you alight on only through this dialogic exchange. And I wonder... Whether and to what degree that parallels some of the coupler or breaking experiences, you know, that in this conversation, it's a conversation or in the breaking you know, battle, it's an argument, maybe, <laughs> but there's some kind of dialogic dynamic there. Do, does any of that resonate? 
Yeah, it actually reminds me of this um, apocryphal Plato quote. So it's uh, not yes. actually Plato, but it's a, basically, but it's sort of on it the internet. The it's on the Plato. internet, so it's real. Um, but, which is basically you can learn more about somebody in half an hour of play versus like hours yeah. of dialogue, right? And so regardless of the provenance of this actual quote, I think there's some truth to this in Capoeira, right? Because there's this idea that looks can be deceiving. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing having practiced Capoeira for about eight years, almost a decade now, like people who don't look like that kind of fitness model version of a capoeirista, which you often see, right? It's usually like very tan, like eight pack abs, you know, can do backflips. And there are people who look like that. There's also people who you wouldn't expect who do amazing things. Like I was at this capoeira festival in Brazil a few years ago. I was uh, still very much a beginner then. And it was a, a game, sort of like the equivalent of a battle and breaking. Um, it was a graduation, so somebody was getting his next chord of contramestre, which is like almost master, right? You're like next to a master. And he was playing a master who was um, this middle-aged woman, kind of heavy set. So she basically, she'd been playing her whole life, but was on the older side. And this young guy who was getting his chord was literally like doing flips in midair, like around her. And she was just, you know, kind of moving around, evading him. And then all of a sudden she just takes him out. Like he landed oh. wrong. And it was just like the most subtle, like basic flick of like the foot and he fell and the crowd just started roaring, right? Because, and that's like the sort of finesse and the poetry of this, right? Of like, yes, you've got youth and acrobatics on your side, but like she's still a master. And that it, there's something almost Zen about that in like minimalist, <laughs> right? It was like, you've done all of this stuff. And all I had to do was put my foot in the right place at the right time and like sayonara. Yeah. So she Hemingwayed him. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just going off you guys and like we we are in essence like practicing exactly what we're talking about right now. This this is like a cipher like in and of itself. And also I'm not gonna go into the detail, but last time I heard from a um, from a, he's he's from another dance style called Light Feet. It's a younger dance style uh, up in Harlem. He he told me that cipher actually originates from an Islamic practice. So I'd like to like research into that. And it's 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 basically like a con it's a form of conversation. I mm -hmm. that's what I thought about when you mentioned totally. the Jewish practice, which was which sounds really dope by the way. But you, Lishan, you mentioned play and you mentioned games and I'm like I apply a play I don't know, play thinking I guess to like so much of what I do. And just going back to the idea of the battle and and why I had to distinguish between like uh a formal competition battle with judges and rules versus a cipher battle, which happens organically. Um, the latter is is more is a zero sum game, and I I don't know if you're familiar with this book because uh, at NYU they made a bunch of NYU kids read it, but it's called Finite Games and Infinite Games. I'll I'll sum it up for you. But the idea of a finite game is a game that you play to win, right? Zero sum. An infinite game is a game that you play to keep playing. You actually need both in your life, of course. And um, so they're not like, I'm not saying that I'm like, oh, I'm an infinite games guy and like whatever. No, I play finite games as well, but th it's a way of perceiving your life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe infinite games is like your long-term paths and finite games are more of your goals in life. But going back to the cypher and the battles, I find cyphers to be an infinite game. Like literally, you kind of want to see how many rounds you can do against each other. And also, 
the rounds kind of the, the narrative changes, right? So I'll give you a sample verbal like cipher battle. Even before the battle starts, one guy goes in. Okay, we'll use myself as a character. I'm standing at a cipher. I'm at a jam. Uh, I watch one guy go in, and he does a move that I can actually do better, right? And then he ends his round. And he's going back to the side of the circle, but then I tap him on the shoulder. I'm like, hey, let's battle. And then I one up his move. And he's like, okay, so this guy wants to do this now. So he'll throw in another move. And then I respond to that move. And then he doesn't have another response to that move. So then he'll do, let's say, uh, he'll do something like not acrobatic. He'll do like footwork, something to do with rhythm. He'll be like, listen, I can uh, watch, I can like listen to the music that's playing. And I'm like, okay, so I'll change it up and then I'll dance to music that's playing. And he's like, okay, okay, fine. Um, I can dance faster than you. I was like, okay, I'll try to dance fast. So the game changes within the game yeah. and the conversation evolves mm-hmm. within the larger conversation. And um, I think that's like the beauty, that's, that's what you find also in like Capoeira, by the way. And I've, I've been dancing house also lately, which is, what's a good way to put it? Maybe it's like a neighbor of breaking. They're not related. They come from different communities historically. But in house, a lot of dancers do quote unquote contact. And it's really like what capoeiristas do. Actually, most a lot of house dancers do capoeira, but it's like the same thing. You're dancing at the same time mm-hmm. and you're trying to like move around each other and like through each other without hitting each other. Yeah. Like, um, but yeah, like these kinds of exchanges are really conversations. Mm-hmm. Right? Lishan, I'm curious about like your response to some of this, especially like, can you talk about like some of your movement workshop and like your mm-hmm. thinking body kind of piece? Because I, I just feel that you and Paulo like this conversation is actually reminding me of an essay that I wrote called The Thinking Body. It was part of this anthology, this book called Wisdom Hackers that came out a few years ago. And we'll post a link to that. But basically, I talk about some of my own movement work, but also like health issues with a primarily sedentary job, you know, sitting at a computer all the time and then having to go to a doctor and physical therapy and then just kind of having that time to reflect on all of these ideas, right? And how people bear their stress, like in stiff shoulders or or things like that. But also, could we flip it and think about our bodies, even if we work in kind of white collar knowledge work as vessels for creativity and not just like, you know, brains attached to hands that type on keyboards. Mm -hmm. And so doing some of my research, there are stories from Albert Einstein, who talked about how before he could articulate the equations for the theory of relativity, he kind of just felt how it made sense and worked in his body in this kind of hard to describe way in words, right? Or there's also stories that I've since learned about since that book, since writing that chapter in that book about uh, George Soros, right? The (laughs) financier who also talks about being able to like feel the market and what the market will do, right? And it, it's, it's an intuitive thing, but it's using the body as vessel for different ways of knowing that have to do with science or finance or whatever that is. So I think that kind of cross-pollination is certainly interesting and something I feel like in Capoeira too, because I think I'm, I don't come off as this way, but I'm naturally shy, but Capoeira has helped me be better at social interactions where it, I realized the metaphor of like, I'm just trying to continue the conversation or I'm just going to do something or say something to get a response and then move on from there and and kind of think about these things as a call and response versus like something that I have to 
over strategize. And I guess that also reminds me, Paolo, of what you said in our prep meeting where you mm -hmm. said you often overthink things, but can you overthink things when you're in a breaking battle and it's so immediate. <laughs> yes, you, you, you can. And it's at my stage right now in breaking, it really, it really is a matter of omission, actually. Hmm. Um, and I actually want to talk more about this in like a broader sense later. But I'm starting to be more in like, again, like more like Zen kind of, like, like a flow state, like trying to find that flow state because um, it changes almost like every year, right? dance and like athletic ability is about muscle memory but what happens when your muscles become like too automatic or too dependent so then you have to find ways to like refresh yourself and that's and again it goes back to the idea of playing and like games so mm. there's a common point of debate right now in breaking battles called uh like sets making sets versus freestyling and sets is like choreography right um, I've been a big proponent of sets. So think of sets as like uh, sentences mm -hmm. and uh, you structure certain moves to make a combo and that's a sentence. And like, yeah, okay, like you've practiced this combination of moves several times and one can interpret it as less genuine because it's not in the moment. But like in many ways that set is the the move itself. So, so they do connect that way. But how you use that set and how you morph it within the moment is what interests me. So, first of all, I, I wanna go back to um, Robert Brisson again, the iconic French filmmaker who he preceded the, the French New Wave. So he was who Godard and like Truffaut all watched and stuff. And he was very peculiar. Um, his approach to directing actors was that he would make them rehearse their lines like a hundred times over, right? Before they would roll to the point of is just like getting banal and stuff, all the lines, and they lost meaning, but that was kind of the point. Um, his idea is that a language, genuine human interaction, especially with language is automatic. The way I'm talking to you guys right now, I didn't rehearse any of this, right? But like my muscle memory of like speaking in this kind of way and like being comfortable talking to you guys is something that's automatic to me. And so when filmmakers like Brisson rolled the camera, they ask the actors to deliver lines as neutral as possible. And in searching for the truth, it's those little gestures or those little like twangs that, that occur in their voice that they don't consciously think of, that's the truth for them. So for instance, like when I was just talking to you right now, I'm like I'm looking at my hand right now, my hand just like opened up. I was pointing to my head earlier. I didn't rehearse like how I'm moving my hands right now or if I lean back in my chair as I say this, that's truth, right? Um, that's what comes when I'm comfortable because of automation. So tying back to tying back to breaking, I'm a big proponent of like learning sets and practicing your combos. But once it comes down to game time in the um, in the battle, anything goes. So lately, the way I've been approaching my rounds in battles, so my opponent goes around or the battle's about to start, I'm gonna go first. What do I do? I only play one game with myself, and that is I do a very simple combination. And I tell myself, if you do this combination, the rest of the battle is yours. Because as you're saying, you overthink. I still, I've been performing for like majority of my life and I still get stage fright. How do I overcome that? How do I get rid of the, you know, the looming anxiety that my friends are watching me or, or like, or like <laughs> my parents will find out that I'm like this underground. How do, how do I get that out of my head? Well, I play a game. All I'm gonna do is, when the music starts, I'm gonna go in front, I'm gonna 
put my right knee down on the ground, my left knee down on the ground, my right foot on the ground, my left foot up on the ground. I'm going to do a pose and it's going to be on beat. And after that, all of that goes away. And then I can just freestyle the rest. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like a ritual. You know? <laughs> it's sort of like the advice the coaches give to people who do public speaking. You're not supposed to memorize your whole speech, but you're supposed to memorize your opening line and your closing line. And the, what happens in the middle is sort of the organic thing. I mean, this is assuming that you've done all of your rehearsal and rehearsal practice, all of that sort of stuff, right? But that if you know a set way of starting and you know where you're going to end up, if you know your material on down, you can figure out the middle. Mm -hmm. That goes back to um, one principle that I hold dearly and my crew and I just we just practiced this last night so one of the most life-changing b-boy lessons I've learned from one of my other mentors Dizzy um, shout out to Dizzy from Canada he just moved to Taiwan <laughs> but um no matter what you do in breaking you got to get up and get up with confidence and that has won me so many battles by the way I can't like count how many times where I like fucked up on like in the middle of a round and I'm like beating myself up over it like internally but I'm never letting that show and then at the end of it guess what I pick my feet up and I do like this like really hard like b-boy stance and I'm like you know like my my mug face and I look at my opponent like that because that is me telling them yeah I meant to do that and telling the audience yeah I meant to do that and true enough my mistakes never show right it's like oh yeah he meant to do that and that's when you asked me earlier, like, what are principles that I carry throughout life that I've learned through breaking? That's like, that's probably the biggest one. It's, it's all about the confidence. It sounds like another one might be this idea of learning something, getting that muscle memory, but then also figuring out how to reset. Is that something that you've noticed in other aspects of your like creative practice writ large? Yeah, this is great. So besides like getting up with confidence, another another thing that you learn inherently through breaking is is how to learn, <laughs> right? Because that's how most people learn breaking. They see a cool move and they're like, damn, how do I do it? It's so technical. I didn't even know my body could do that. Right. And then you from there, you like you get addicted and you want to learn new moves. You asked me earlier, like, how how, do, how the hell do I even get into like all sorts of of mediums right and like until now i'm picking up a different one like we're doing a podcast now i have my own podcast as well you can find it this the small break um on on wherever podcasts are found but um I, I started that last year and it's just this this passion for like constantly learning mm -hmm. you know learning is a skill and you can actually get better at it i was beating myself up over not being good at picking up b-boy vocabulary earlier but i'm getting better at it and through breaking like i've gotten into all sorts of various mediums where i didn't feel like i was starting from square one like when you talk about how breaking can help you learn to learn i'm reminded of this activity that i often do in my classes and to a lesser extent some of our workshops but I'm loath to even share it now in case future students are listening. <laughs> I, we, what we do is, uh, it's this exercise, it's, you can look this up online, lots of other people do it, it's hardly a, a novel thing, but you give participants in this workshop uh, some rudimentary materials and they have to make a structure. And so you give them string, raw spaghetti, like uncooked spaghetti, and a marshmallow. And sometimes tape, sometimes not. <laughs> and 
the idea is that you have to build a structure, and the only rule is that it has to have marshmallow on the top, and the team with the large, the tallest structure wins. And you see this enormous profusion of different types of designs. You often you give like ridiculous time pressure, so it's 17 minutes, and people will try different things. But the teams that end up doing the best job on this tend to have something in common, and it's that they learn from the activity itself. They have to have enough psychological comfort to try something and say, oh, this is, a, this is terrible, scrap it, start again. Oh, this too is terrible and shaky. And by trying something several times, they infer different principles for spaghetti and marshmallow design mm -hmm. uh, of buildings that they didn't, because we don't necessarily know how to build with spaghetti and marshmallows. <laughs> and so this is an opportunity to try something out. And this, this particular exercise has been done with all kinds of folks, like corporate executives and lawyers and engineers and architects and kindergartners. The people who perform best on the task tend to be architects and kindergartners. Architects have, you know, and the, the kindergartners outperform lawyers and design masters, students at Parsons and, and other, other people who have vast subject matter knowledge, but just because they're open to learning. Yeah. And that's what the kindergartners get right every time. So there has to be a certain level of comfort with trying something, failing, scrapping it, taking something from it and trying something new. I'd be curious to hear more of your thoughts about how this has helped you learn and yeah. learn differently. The first thing that I recall listening to that analogy is that there is also like a, a popular experiment in which 40 different preschoolers were given a paperclip and asked like how to use it and they got 40 different answers, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's a testament to children, but like beyond that, it's a testament to um, having a childlike, playful mentality that's in which you humble yourself and you try to forget, you try to forget what you know and try to start off with a blank slate. And I think that is integral to learning, like what you're saying and like how we teach ourselves to like learn better. One point that just came yeah. through in the first part of your response though was the importance of play yes. for learning yeah. and how play can be instructive. This is one of the things that we see and we try to build into our practice, but yeah, oftentimes people are uncomfortable <laughs> with play uh, because it's not serious. It's not, you know, the, the connection to discrete you know, outputs is, is more attenuated, but it seems like this is something that you've grokked. And so I was curious about that, but other things that you might have learned from it. Yeah. No, I mean, no, exactly, exactly. It's um, to piggyback off the play-like approach. It's it's really like, for me, like the child-like approach. And I, I very much consider myself attuned with my inner child and like manifested most, especially by the fact that I published a children's uh, picture book, right? And and that taught me so much. Um, it's not only delving into a new industry, but like a new medium. I mentioned earlier about like the art of omission or being in a space of omission. Like what better way to really rattle like your your writing capabilities than to be limited to like 34 pages with like one to two lines per page right it's crazy and even more destructive oh my god man i was working with my illustrator and her notes for like a lot of my lines just destroyed a lot of like my more sophisticated language, you know. When you, when you write, you start to fall in love with your own writing and, and you want to be smart and you want to be 
uh, cater to your in intellect as opposed to like say your reader's emotion which you should put in priority one and so you, you start to write all flowery and you have like all these flourishes and she's like no 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 just say oh he went to his dad's room <laughs> that's what this page is jamie went to his dad that's it and like i was so humbled by that experience so like I work so much with kids on sets, and if you've ever been on a film set, it could easily turn into one of like the most like intense in like work environments. You know, like see Christian Bale, <laughs> like that viral like moment where Christian Bale like went off against that DP. But like that, that's a real thing, right? And I've shot films and uh, short films and music videos with kids and uh, with a crew that you know they're. They probably don't like working with kids as much as I do. And sometimes it gets late in the set. The kids get restless. And that's when I put on my other my other hat, the, the one that, that is childlike in and of itself. And the kids saw me as a director at the start of the day. But then I'm like, hey, man, I meet them at their level. And I'm like, look, I'm one of you, man. Like, we're going to do this thing together. It's going to be great. You've been mm -hmm. working hard. We play all sorts of games. We joke around. I joke. I act silly on set. And... I, I know my limits too, of course, but but I think there is something to be said about turning on like a childlike approach to things every once in a while. So Paolo, we're reaching the end of our time together. So we ask other guests this as well, but what are you consuming right now in terms of what are you reading? What are you watching? And then what's next for you creatively in terms of projects? You saw my backpack and I just went on a shopping spree. So I just, if to, to, tomorrow it's going to be a different book, but um, I'm reading a nonfiction Tolstoy book. I'm almost done with it. It's what is art? It's like a long form rant. So, so what is so what is art? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, great, great, great. This is this is a big takeaway. I think we we kind of pretty much said it. But in short, the real art to which he spends like a hundred pages, like he spends a hundred pages telling you what counterfeit art is, which is basically most of the art we see. He invalidates most of the art we see. Um, but but real art. Uh, to him is communion of souls, right? And that's what we talked about in terms of language being limited. It's my soul trying to reach out to yours and like using language as a medium, whereas art is a nonverbal form of like trying to make someone feel what you feel. And that's empathy, right? We've, we've used that word. We use that word in all of the industries that you and I are part of. Empathy, right? And like design thinking, filmmaking, we all want that. Um, and we all need that to execute properly. Counterfeit art, on the other hand, has four characteristics. It's uh, borrowing, imitation, effectfulness, and diversion. And that's basically kind of what I mentioned earlier about when I was writing my children's book, adding all sorts of like effective language and like trying to sound like I knew what I was talking about. And a lot of filmmakers do this all the time. It's like, oh, I'm going to pay homage to Akira Kurosawa by like shooting the scene in that way. But but real art, the true art that Tolstoy is like getting at is ones that are specific to you mm -hmm. personally, because it's a feeling that you felt without those filters, um, without outside influence that you're trying to convey. And the more specific you can get, and the more clear you can get at that emotion to convey and make accessible to other people, that's that's what he calls uh, good art. So anyway, he rants about a lot of stuff that I disagree with. That's the main gist of it. And what is next for you in terms of creative projects? Oh, man. Well, I'm actually really glad we didn't 
talk about it the whole time. Maybe for maybe for a future. No, because that means we had a of good course. conversation. The main thing that's happening in my life is I'm about to head to the Philippines, my hometown, and I'm gonna shoot my first ever feature film. It'll be my directorial debut as a feature director, and proud to say it will feature a cast of both known Filipino ta talents and American talents. So it's very ambitious in that regard. It looks like it's happening. I mean, I have my plane ticket, so <laughs> yeah, wish, wish me luck. <laughs> wish me luck. Good luck, and thank you for coming and doing this podcast with us yeah. on your last day in New York before this uh, yeah. flying off to do this project. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. This was really yeah. fun. Yeah, thank you. This is awesome. Yeah, great awesome. talking as always. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you.